What's up, motorheads? It's time for F1 Break Check. This is where we talk about all things Formula One history, technology, and debate the latest happenings in the circus we all love called F1. Tonight, we're going to be talking Austria. We'll talk about the history of the Austrian Grand Prix and the tracks involved. We'll talk tires in our tech corner. We'll take and we'll recap the news from this week from the qualifying sprint shootout sprint race and race so we got a busy busy agenda ahead and plus we'll have all the latest news and rumors to go along with everything else Corey, what's going on with you sir more heat (laughs) more heat yes absolutely yeah yes but you know we've we've been fortunate lately it's we've had some some rain so not too bad haven't had any cigars lately but i did have some of the uh, jameson whiskey the other night nice (laughs) <laughs> nice two nice ago, a few months ago i traveled to uh, ireland and toward the jameson distillery and allegedly there's one type of whiskey that you can only purchase there scott and i had some what was that a couple months ago now that's probably been about two months yeah good yeah, stuff oh yeah. Uh, yeah i'm a big fan of, of irish whiskeys what about you what yes. would you like I like Irish whiskeys. I like scotches. Not a big fan of bourbons. I don't know what it is about that particular style, but bourbons and ryes and things like that, it just it caused me all kinds of heartburn, whereas scotch and Irish whiskeys don't do that to me. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, but I'm also a big fan of gin as well. Well, that's awesome. What type of gins do you like? Corey's known me for a very long time, and he'll, he'll attest to this, that I am not a big fan of any most celebrity backed products i find that they have a tendency to be overpriced and under delivered i am a huge fan of the aviator gin that is uh owned by ryan reynolds that is just some absolutely fantastic stuff i'm a real big fan of of that one and i'm also a real big fan of hendrix wow i didn't know that so i'm not that big of a fan of gins but i completely agree with you on bourbons I just, I, I'm sorry to all, all of our U.S. fans, but, oh, those bourbons just kill me. I, I can't do it. I, I have to, yes. and, and this is embarrassing, but I usually have to cut it, like, with Coke and a lot of, <laughs> whereas with, with Irish whiskeys or, or scotches, I can drink those, not in the wise, just plain. You know, nice yep. and neat, nothing else, perfect. But yep, bourbon, they're beautiful that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are, they are. So, Let's change subjects. Let's talk about our rundown. Do you want to start on uh, track history? Sure. Yeah, sure. This is a track that has pretty rich history. The first Austrian Grand Prix was actually hosted in 67 at Zeltwig, which was a lot like Silverstone and a number of other European tracks. They were basically converted airfields that they turned into racetracks after the World War II. Um, but the Zeltweg only hosted one F1 world championship race. They had a non-championship race the year before. 67 was the only year that they ever had a actual points paying race there. Like I said, the, the track was really super bumpy. It was super narrow. The fan viewing was apparently just horrible. The fans complained about it. So after one year, it was basically nixed from the calendar. So then two years later, a purpose-built track was built in nearby 
Spielberg dubbed the Osterreich Ring, hosted races from 1970 to 1987. Probably one of the most infamous uh, years was 1975, which saw the death of Mark Donahue at the track, which was a close friend, but someone who Roger Penske was hugely involved in his career, and they were very close, and and. Mark Donahue's death was a huge blow to Penske. And I think later on, I think it was a big reason why Penske kind of lost his taste for F1, decided to stick with IndyCar and sports car racing and everything. So, but again, like the track at Zeltwig, after 1987, they stopped going to Austria for a short period of time because, again, they said that the track was too narrow. It was unsafe because the old track layout had very long, very fast sweeping corners and everything. And they determined that the speed was just too great around that track and it just left too much uh, margin for error. And so they took and nixed it. So then 1997 rolls around, had an extensive redesign, cut some of the corners took a lot of the the high speed corners away to slow the track down and everything. So, and, and bring it up to F1 standards. It was renamed the A1 ring for one of the sponsors in 1997 when it returned to the calendar and it was on the calendar until 2003. Most notable, and I think kind of what signed the, the death knell for it was the 2002 uproar. For those of you who aren't familiar with that particular one Rubens Barrichello his Ferrari was just the class of the field that day but because of the championship implications Ferrari forced him to basically slow down to allow Schumacher to catch up with him and he literally Schumacher passed him to get the win with literally like 10-15 feet to go in the race lot there was a lot of people that were in a huge uproar for that there was a thing about you know all about oh team orders are terrible they shouldn't be allowed and everything 1997 the track gets back on the the f1 calendar the track is renamed the a1 ring it's gone through an extensive redesign probably of the from those years particular years from 97 to 2003 when when it was back on the the calendar 2002 race was probably kind of what sounded the the death knell for Austria for a time being, simply because, for those of you who aren't familiar, that was the year that Rubens Barrichello's Ferrari was just the class of the field. I mean, he had everybody firmly handled, was just storming away, and Ferrari forced him to slow down to allow his teammaker, teammate Michael Schumacher to pass him and get the win. And Rubens Barrichello had to slow down so much that literally Schumacher didn't pass him until like the last 10, 15 feet before the start finish line. And so people just were just all up in arms about team orders and how it was ruining the sport and everything else. And just uh, <laughs> caused all kinds of controversy and everything. So track leaves the, the calendar. And then years later, it's renamed the Red Bull Ring. It's, you know, they announced in 2013 that it's coming back to the calendar. First race is held in 2014, and we've had it on the calendar ever since. In fact, even during the COVID years, in order to flesh out the schedule, we actually had back-to-back weekends at 
the Red Bull ring in order to have more races in the season during the COVID times. So it just uh, really fascinating history and a really great track. It's really one of those old world circuits, you know, that, that everybody just loves and everything. It's got some great elevation changes to it has, you know, a really nice mix of really fast corners, some great straightaways. So just all around fantastic track. It being Ripple's home track now is, is actually one of my favorite tracks. Well, this in Monaco, well, and Silverstone and yeah, those are my favorite ones. And it's, and it has been uh, the site of some very uh, epic battles, especially during the turbo era. There was several races where you just had five or six cars that were just storming the field and everything. But because of the turbos unreliability and the fact that the gearboxes at that time were so fragile, it was basically it was a toss up of who was going to win. I mean, they were all just blindingly fast. But it was just a matter of who's going to explode and who would be able to take their cars home <laughs> to take the win. Right. And there's a number of drivers that, uh, you know, it's their first wins came on at Austria. You know, you got John Watson and, you know, it's probably the most famous driver who got his first win at the at the Osterreich ring. And there's a couple of guys that literally their sole wins came at Austria. So just just a fantastic track if you haven't never checked out the, the history on it go check out the wikipedia page it's got even more stories on there and everything and, and some of which are just fascinating so changing gears going into our tech corner for this week talking all about tires yep so tires for me is probably one of the most fascinating subjects in formula one just not just because of the the current state of tires and the and what it provides to the team's strategy on any given race weekend, but just the evolution of the tires from the beginning to where we're at today. And because the tires are literally the only four points of contact between the car and the ground, and without the tires, nothing else happens. So, and they can also be the source of great misery when one of them decides to let it go. Last week, we kind of touched upon uh, a little bit about the tires and everything. So we're going to go a little more in depth about them this week. Like we talked about last week, Pirelli actually has five different compounds that they use for the dry weather tire. Everybody refers to as the slicks. And depending upon the track and the predicted track conditions for a given weekend, they will decide on three of those five tires that they will bring. They range anywhere from super soft to hard, which hard is kind of a misnomer. And I'm using the air quotes right now because even the hard tire won't last more than 130, 150 miles before it completely comes apart, as opposed to your average radial that's on your Volkswagen or on your pickup truck, which is designed to last 40, 50, 60,000 miles. <laughs> Huge difference. Yeah. So, And the price difference is there too, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when you're talking about $200, $250 for a car tire and 2,000 pounds for, a, for one racing tire, and on a given weekend, the teams will have, depending upon whether it's a regular weekend or a sprint weekend, will have anywhere between seven to seven or eight sets of dry weather tires, plus the intermediates, plus the wet tires. So you do the math. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to do it because I stuck in math. <laughs> so one of the things that I've been curious about is who governs 
the tire at the track. Whenever there's a race, you always see Pirelli tire is going to be this hardness. Who does that? Is that a team collective? Is that Pirelli coming through and saying, this is what we recommend and that's what the teams will do? Who governs that? Or is it the FIA? The FIA governs how the tires can be constructed, but it's completely upon Pirelli to decide which tires they're going to bring to a track on a given weekend. They are also the ones who dictate minimum and maximum air pressure that's allowed to be used on the cars. They also take and they provide a standard of how the tires should be used. So they say that, okay, so the super soft tire, you shouldn't run it more than X number of laps before you retire that tire simply because they, they know the construction and they know the conditions and they can tell you that, okay, at, at some point you're going to wear through the tire and you're going to be at the cords after so many miles in these particular conditions. So Pirelli has pretty much carte blanche on how the tires are used, what tires are used, and et cetera, et cetera, during a given race weekend. The only input that the FIA has is they say, is they tell them certain longevity targets that Pirelli has to hit. Now, part of that comes from, though, is that, and we'll get to this in just a few minutes when we start talking about the tire wars and stuff of the past, because once upon a time, any manufacturer could decide that they wanted to, to go F1 racing. But after several high-profile incidents in the past, that's when the FIA Formula One stepped in and said, okay, we're going to have a single tire manufacturer and they are going to, we will dictate the rules of how the tires are constructed and, you know, how long they should, you know, a given tire should last depending upon what type of tire it is. But it's up to the manufacturer that we give the contract to. They're the ones who are going to determine all the parameters around the tires themselves. Racing series that still allows multiple manufacturers is IMSA. And in Europe, the, the Le Mans series, where you'll have Michelin, Continental, Goodyear, different teams in different classes will use different uh, tire manufacturers. Interesting. Since I don't follow NASCAR or IndyCar, which is funny because we have a track right here in Texas, but I have never been, nor do I ever <laughs> see myself ever really going to one. So that's interesting that they've adopted the same principle as as F1. Yep. It's, and, and like I said, really a lot of it was brought about by necessity because of the tire wars, the cost escalated so out of control that in some cases it actually forced manufacturers to actually leave series and things like that, which we'll actually, I'll get into here in just a few minutes when we talk about the history of the tire evolution, escalating costs. And then also because there's been a couple of high profile incidences of accidents that occurred because of the escalating tire performance that thankfully for the most part everybody was okay but it still it led to some very very scary moments in all three of the major series so real quick let's talk about the evolution of the tire so back in when the formula one world championship as we know it today started back in 1950 
the tires weren't much different from, and in fact, in, in a lot of cases, they weren't any different from a tire that you would find on a road going. And there are some teams, they literally would make a set of tires last an entire season. Now, admittedly, there was only 12, 14, 16 races per season. It's nowhere near the 22 to 24 races that Formula One runs now. But if you go back and look at pictures of the cars from like the Alfa Romeos and the Ferraris of that era where they had these skinny little tires out there. You just think, my God, how did they ever even get around the corner on those tiny little things? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing when you see pictures of or even video from back then. But mm -hmm. you know, you brought up an interesting point, one that anybody that watches the Grand Tour on Amazon would know. The, the latest one, you know, James May, obviously he, as in true James May fashion, never made it he was too late <laughs> the car they picked was too slow <laughs> took him hours to get there so he, he missed the, the entire race jeremy clarkson was let's say larger than life and couldn't fit into the the uh the, the car but it was interesting that, that you brought that up because the race that they did was an homage to the russians version of or i guess that would be the Soviet's version of f1 so it was interesting because they were saying that the entire season also, they had to keep that tire one set for the entire season just because really the teams couldn't afford more than just one set. So it's interesting that there's more of the few that we've talked about today that have basically the same beginnings, right? Where they have come from humble beginnings, basically. So you have different racing series that come from very humble beginnings, but these are people that still want to race and still will make do on one set of tires or they'll make do with one engine. If they blow the engine, they're out for the entire season. So they have to be very careful and very cognizant of what they're doing. So it's just very interesting to see how this plays out through different teams. It is. It's, 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 it is very fascinating how you see the evolution of, and especially, you know, even to like what you were just saying, you know, that from now is it's like you've got not counting drag racing or anything or, you know, rallying off-roading, but, uh, you know, as far as the top tier major racing series, you know, you do, you have Formula One, you have NASCAR, you have IndyCar, and those teams will go through multiple engines multiple tire you know multiple engines per year multiple tires per weekend so oftentimes they'll have multiple cars that they will have available to them during the season but then as you start coming down the tiers and stuff so you start getting into f2 two car team you know may only have two cars the entire season one for each driver and if they put one of them in the wall then they have to repair that car in order for them to go racing the following weekend and then you start getting down to like the amateur level where like you said sometimes the amateur levels where the drivers will have to you know make a, a tire last for the entire season or, or they have to you know make a they, they only have it in the budget to you know maybe rebuild the engine once per season and things like that so yeah it's fascinating that just you know the love for racing is there and people make it work despite that <laughs> you know despite the limitations on money and resources so getting back to our evolution of the tire so after the 1950s in the in the narrow you know road going tires we started to see more uh, of the purpose-built racing tires but they were still they started getting wider and they started becoming because as they learned that the wider the tire the more contact patch the the better the grip and they started becoming more and more like slicks where they had very very shallow grooves in them and there wasn't as much of the cross section 
breakage in the the treads so it, they just became more and more like slicks until eventually in 1971 firestone introduces the first set of full-on slick tires in formula one and then you just had like we were talking about just a minute ago then you had the era from from the 60s uh, you know well actually from the very beginning of, of formula one you always had most years you had at least two manufacturers but really 1964 to 1992 was really kind of the heyday of tire manufacturers when they could take just like i was saying earlier is just about anyone who wanted to go racing as long as you had a team that was willing to fit your tires on their car you could show up at the racetrack so i mean you had everybody you know from goodyear to firestone dunlop pirelli michelin Avon, they were all producing tires for Formula One teams. If you go look up F1 Tire Evolution on Wikipedia, they have a really brilliant chart on there that takes and shows you each season how the manufacturers that were racing in Formula One and the number of wins that each manufacturer had. So you had that era of, you know, the late 70s all the way into the 90s where Goodyear was just the dominant tire, but you also had a few times in in that era where you know you had Michelin come up with a really good tire or you know Pirelli would come up with a really good tire and they would be able to to eke out some wins and everything then so then just kind of by de facto everybody else pulled out so from 1992 to 96 you basically had Goodyear became the sole supplier for tires in Formula One but this was also the era of when as we've talked about in past podcast where on every race weekend you would have during qualifying they actually had qualifying tires that were so super sticky that once they heated up i mean they were literally melting onto the track it very famously one of the engineers who worked on the mclaren the all-conquering mclaren mp44 and four sticks would literally talk about the qualifying tires they would be so hot that if they let it sit on the tarmac in the pit for too long they couldn't roll the car away because the tires would literally <laughs> melt to the asphalt okay so then 1997 bridgestone enters the fray we have a you know a very short-lived tire war that's 1997 1998, the FIA, in order to slow the cars down because of the ensuing tire war in 97, says, okay, starting in 1998, all Formula One tires have to have a groove, have to have grooves cut in them. They started with four grooves in the back and three in the front and later went to four in both the front and the back. So 1998, Goodyear picks and does one year with the groove tires and says, nope, that's it. We're out. So they disappear. And so Bridgestone is the sole supplier until 2001. And then in 2001, Michelin joins uh, Formula One. And so we have another tire war between Michelin and Bridgestone. And then in 2005, for a single year, tire changes were outlawed. So can you imagine now with tires Pirelli's producing, them not being allowed to do any kind of tire change during the race? <laughs> <laughs> that's just oh, to me man. is insane so it goes back to you know like the it was like going back to the 1950s and 60s where they would literally do an entire race on one set of tires that's funny because there's so much strategy now in when you do a tire change how many tire changes it's amazing how different f1 is today just because of all the strategies behind it obviously all the science and everything else that, that's behind the, the tires and the strategy behind when and and how often and how many stops to make all plays into it and then just not too long ago really we had an era where 
they only did one tire change or they did zero tires. Mm-hmm. So it, yep. It's just I find it so fascinating how fast technology evolves. Absolutely, and that's the reason why F1 has always been the pinnacle of motor racing is just simply because they've embraced the whole technological aspect of it and everything and allowed the, the rules have always been open enough to allow for these innovations to happen. Yeah. But like I said, 2005 it was the, the, you know, tire changes were outlawed. And then we had the Indy debacle, which I, I think we've talked about, I can't remember if we've actually talked about it on the podcast before, or if we talked about it in one of our private conversations, but don't know if you remember us talking about this, but that was the year that when the, the U.S. Grand Prix used to be held on the infield road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And that year, they had two of the Michelin runners, both had massive blowouts coming on through the banking, coming onto the front straightaway. And all of the Michelin teams said, hey, we need, you know, we want some kind of chicane or something built, you know, out of tires or something just temporarily to slow the cars down going through that section because otherwise, you know, the tires are going to fail. The FIA said, nope, not going to happen. And so all the cars, because of the sporting, I, I forget what the exact way the sporting regulation was written, the cars all had to take and do the parade lap. And then as they were coming up to the grid, there was three teams. There was Ferrari, Jordan, and I forget who the third team was. Those are the only three teams that actually rolled up to the grid. They all pulled into their their starting spots on the grid. Every other team rolled their cars into the pit lane, rolled into the garage, packed up, and left. In fact, most of the teams were actually gone before the race was even finished. That was at the point where people were throwing trash on the track and everything because they were all so upset over what a debacle that <laughs> race was. <laughs> so after that, 2006, tire changes come back. And then in 2007, the FIA, because of the, again, like we were talking about earlier, because of escalating costs, because of escalating, because they were pushing the envelope so hard and because of the the farce that was Indy in 2005. So 2007, the FIA finally says, okay, we're going to go with a single tire manufacturer. A number of companies all expressed interest. Bridgestone ends up winning out and becomes the sole tire provider again. Fast forward to 2011, Bridgestone decides, okay, at the end of the year, we're dropping out of Formula One. And so the FIA again opens it up for people to basically bid on being the the tire supplier for Formula One, and Pirelli wins. And so Pirelli have been the official tire supplier of Formula One up until present day. They have gone through a, a number of different iterations as far as the rules go. There for a while, they instead of having three sets, you know, three different types of, of slick tires, they only had two. They had what they considered the primary tire, which was a, a very soft tire compound, and then they would have a harder compound tire available to the teams. If I remember correctly, there were no, unlike now, there were no restrictions on, okay, you have to run both tires in a given weekend. You could run one tire, you know, you could run just the primary tire the entire weekend, or if the hard tire was the better choice and you wanted to use that as part of your strategy, you could run the hard compound. It wasn't until, I want to say it was somewhere around 2013, 2014, 14, when they went to the three tire compounds per weekend that the FIA said, okay, 
you can have three compounds, but you have to use at least two of them during a given weekend. And that's where we're at today as far as that regulation is concerned, is we have to do is the teams all have to use at least two of the dry weather compounds. Now, the one caveat to that, though, is if there's rain during the weekend, you know, during the race, even if the rain happens before the race and they and, and the teams elect to start on the intermediate or wet tires, then the two tire compound is immediately thrown out the window because if they have to run the entire, if it's raining the entire time, they have, you know, of course the teams are going to run them either on intermediates or, or the full wets. So that rules tossed aside in the case of rain. And then finally in the evolution of the tires in 1922, we get to the new low profile tires, which becomes much more like modern day because before then, the Formula One tires had in the compounds themselves were so far ahead of where street tires were at, but in their design, they were, they still, they, although very wide, they had a very, very tight, tall sidewall, which was resulted in a lot of flexing. So the more the tire flexes as it's going through a corner and everything, the less grip the tire has. And so they they increased this. They only ran, I believe it was either 14 or 15 inch wheels. And starting in 2022, when they changed the chassis regulations, they also changed the tire regulations and went to 18 inch wheels so that it was much more like a modern you know, car with a much lower sidewall. There you go. So there's the our tech corner for the week. Talk about the racing news and quick recap of the weekend, the track limits, the issues that we had there, qualifying, oh and talk about the sprint shootout before we actually talk about the race itself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, first of all, we have to address the elephant in the room from this weekend <laughs> is the whole track limits kerfuffle that the FIA handed out over 1,200 penalties, either of times deleted or warnings given that eventually ended up in 5, 10, 15 second, you know, race time penalties, things like that. It was just, as one of the drivers has said, it just made the F1 look amateurish because of all the track limit issues. Yeah, it's, uh, we alluded to this on our last podcast, but it's a tight circuit, no doubt about it. And especially around corner 10, that's where I think the vast majority, if not all the track limit violations came from but mm-hmm. when you have how many race drivers did you say 12 different drivers that had not only violated the track limits but also had penalties i mean we're talking yes. about everybody just about k mag we're talking lewis hamilton who bellyached the entire time about it yeah <laughs> you know you had him you had perez that was he got the the black and white flag you had yep. so many people that actually got violations and had to serve their penalties out. It, yes. it was crazy. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I think every single driver had at, this weekend, with the exception of, I believe it was Nick DeVries, I think I saw was the only driver who didn't have a lap time or some or, or was given some kind of warning for exceeding track limits. So you're right. I mean, the, the, the Red Bull ring is a very tight circuit, especially coming out of 10. The drivers are pushing so hard that inevitably they're going to 
run over the curbs. And I remember, I forget which track it was, but I remember there was a few years back, there was one track where every single lap, every single driver was literally going all the way over the curbs onto the concrete runoff area coming out of one of the turns coming onto the front straightaway. And I think that's kind of what brought up the whole where the FIA started enforcing the track limits. But I think Christian Horner had it right, where he just said, these are professional drivers. This whole track limit thing is ridiculous. What you do is you just set up the curbs in such a way that if the driver exceeds the track limits, chances are probably pretty good he's going to damage his car. I'm paraphrasing here, of course. You know, I, I forget what Christian's exact wording was, but it basically what he said was, is bring back the type of curves that if they go past a certain point, they're going to damage the car and that will keep them from going, exceeding the track limits way better than just, hey, you got a warning for going over the track limits. You got a warning again. Oh, you got your time deleted. No, it, you know, that would solve that problem real quick. Yeah, because nobody wants to go out like that. Nobody wants to have their day finished or their qualifying finished because they went over track limits. Yep. So that that absolutely will <laughs> will enforce track limits more than anything else because like like Christian was saying, these are professional drivers. They know where the track limits are yeah, to a certain extent, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure not all of them were doing that on purpose you know violating corner 10 on purpose but if they no, knew, they're just pushing really yeah, really hard exactly but if they knew hey if i push this hard i'm going to damage my car to the extent of having my race done for the day or having my qualifiers done for the day if they knew that then they'll they'll be a lot more cautious and they they won't violate that absolutely so yeah, so I'm going to get back up on my soapbox and talk about how I'm in the same camp as Verstappen and a couple of the other drivers, although Verstappen's been the most vocal about it. I am really not a fan of the sprint races, and I am even less of a fan of the whole sprint shootout for qualifying is... I, at least with the last year and the year before that with the sprint races, you know, it was like you had qualifying for the sprint race. And then the sprint race, how you finished in the sprint race determined your starting position for the race on Sunday. That I was a little more okay with, but this having only one practice session and then going straight into qualifying, the teams haven't had time to really get, you know, especially this weekend with the way that the conditions were changing, you know, it made it really hard for the teams to really get a handle on the car setup because of only having one practice session before they went straight into qualifying. And because of that, yeah, you're going to see a lot more of the instability that resulted in a lot of these exceeding track limit penalties and coming down. I think that they need to at least re- do the schedule instead of having maybe shorten the you know the sprint shootout times or something they needed at least one more additional practice time to to get the setups right on the cars if they want to try to avoid some of these track limit issues like they were having this last weekend when we talk about qualifying though you know it's like like we were saying we'll stop beating the dead horse but the track limits knock out Perez after Q in Q2 he ends up starting the race in 15 multiple drivers lose their lap time due to this ridiculousness at one point in q2 magnuson was p2 but he lost because he exceeded track limits so he had that time deleted you had ghastly joe granu 
Hamilton. So it's not just like it's the inexperienced drivers. It was every single driver was getting hit with these, you know, getting lap times deleted. It was yeah. just kind of, you know, it was just really, really hard to stomach all really. of these things that were happening in qualifying, you know, with the whole track limit things. But we wind up with Verstappen on the pole. Ferrari looked really, really solid with Leclerc and Seitz in second and third. But then even Verstappen's pole at, for a short period of time may even seem to be in question because there was, you know, Verstappen gets called into the stewards, you know, to explain himself because they thought that maybe he might have been impeding Magnussen. But the, after talking to the stewards, they come back and say, no, you know, it's everything's cool. So Verstappen got to keep his pole. Norris has a brilliant Fourth. I mean, we'll talk a little bit about the the McLaren upgrades here in a few minutes that helped Norris come to that absolutely astonishing how much of a, a turnaround it was for McLaren, to, you know, for him to qualify fourth. And then we also had Lance Stroll took an out-qualified Alonso in eighth and ninth for the second time this year. So, Corey, thoughts on any of that? I mean, so much there. You know, this is the, what, third time that Alonzo, and we'll, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, when we talk more about the race, but you know, Alonzo just, he didn't do well on, on the, in this track, you know, not only in, in qualification or qualities, but he didn't do well in the race itself either. He didn't get a podium, which when, when you talk about Alonzo and if he's not getting podium, that's not good, right? <laughs> no. But to be fair, he got what? I, I think he got sixth overall. I mean, mm -hmm. still talking a phenomenal end, a phenomenal finish with this race, but you know, I still wanted to, wanted to see him higher. I wanted to see him be on that podium this time, but you know, hopefully, hopefully this won't be indicative of the remaining of the year because he's been looking really, really strong. It's just the qualities and and the actual race itself. It just something was was not there. Absolutely, and, and but you know, and we'll definitely see at the next race at Silverstone. We'll we'll hopefully we'll see a, a bounce back from Alonso. Yeah, I hope so. He is yeah. uh, extraordinarily to watch. So yes, having him up absolutely higher, it definitely will do nothing but really enhance the race and keep old Max on on his toes as well. Absolutely. Okay, so next let's move on to the sprint shootouts. We went straight from qualifying on Friday to the sprint shootout on Saturday. More track limit penalties. You know, Hamilton at one point is even uh, topping the chart, you know, the speed charts. Gets his lap deleted because of the penalties. But Perez does a much better job of staying within track limits. Winds up second next to Max on the front row. And Lando comes in third, which, again, just goes to show that just how much his fortune continued to improve with the new improvements to the car. So, and then, but anyway, then we take, we go into the sprint race on a Saturday afternoon and it starts raining right before the beginning. And we, as we talked about last weekend, we love wet weather. <laughs> Rain is the great equalizer. <laughs> so it was very cool that, you know, so all but uh, one team opted to start on the intermediates and there was one driver towards the back of the grid. And I'm trying to remember who it was who started on the full wets. But then it stopped raining and the dry line takes and starts to appear. A bunch of drivers jump into the pits, you know, to take on dry tires, including Hamilton. It doesn't make that much of a difference in the end, again, because being a sprint race, it's very short, so they didn't have time to make up that ground. Um, so we wind up with uh, Verstappen wins the sprint race. Uh, Perez comes in second. 
um, challenges Max on the opening lap, actually went at him pretty hard, um, actually got around him uh, at the first corner because he got a much better start. And because he had the inside line, he actually gets around him. But then he, he takes and goes a little wide, drops two tires off, and Max gets him going into turn three. So what do you think? What do you think about the, the Perez versus Verstappen opening to the sprint race? Honestly, I, I, I loved it. I like watching I like watching that kind of battle. I don't like ticky tacky type stuff. What I really enjoy is just watching drivers race. So take out the teams for the minute. Team orders and, and being part of the team is one thing. But when you're racing and competing for that first place, you need to be as aggressive as possible. Yeah, he may have pushed him into the grass. Yeah, it sucks. He he mm-hmm. had that corner. It was Verstappen's, no doubt about it. But let's be honest here. How many times has Verstappen done the same thing? Absolutely. Uh, a few times. So I don't have a problem with it at all. I Again, I love to see the competition. I love to see the aggression. And if they're on the same team, they're both vying for a seat next year. Well, Max, yep. maybe not so much, but Checo for sure. Yeah. I, that doesn't bother me at all. I like to see that. What about you, Scott? I'm the same way. I loved it. You know, I love the fact that Red Bull let them race. You know, I love the fact that there are, you know, in in these situations like this, there are no team orders. It's just the the one rule is don't put your teammate in the wall or don't pitch him into the kitty litter. You know, as long as you race clean and race fair, go for it. Go as hard as you can. Yeah, I definitely, I love to watch, you know, I love to watch it when the teammates are able to, to go. I love to watch, you know, I love to watch them go wheel to wheel because, I mean, that's, that's you know, that's exciting stuff. A thousand percent. It, it, it's so boring to, to watch, okay, well, this guy's in the lead and we know he's going to be in the lead. That doesn't make for a race at all. You know, we, we had a, a good example of that with Ferrari. And the actual race itself, where yep. you know, Signs had the pace. He should have led. But it was yes. but again, I'll stop there. I won't go too much further because uh I'll get on a soapbox and I know we want to talk about that when we talk about the race. There you go. Moving on to the race though, like we said, you know, before when we were talking about qualifying and everything, that there was over, you know, over the course of the weekend, there was over twelve hundred plus reports of track limit violations coming down in all kinds of penalties, you know, time penalties, laps deleted and everything. So we've already beaten that dead horse. At the start of the race, you know, Yuki Sonoda takes and pitches it into the gravel. So we have a, a, a full safety car and then Verstappen leads Leclerc, you know, on the restart, you know, Leclerc is actually, you know, challenging Verstappen a little bit, not as much as, as Checo did during the sprint race, but all in all, he was right there. He was hanging with Verstappen for, you know, a little bit at the beginning of the race to the point where, you know, Verstappen builds, you know, a pretty sizable lead, but unlike past races, the lead wasn't so considerable that he actually pits the car takes on four tires, comes back out, and Leclerc is able to pass him. It's the first time in 200-and-something laps that Verstappen hasn't led a a Grand Prix. (laughs) He lost his dominance. Yep, for a whole nine laps. Yeah, and then he got it back very quickly. Yep, and it was definitely a situation where he was able to, you know, he was far enough behind at first that, you know, he didn't have DRS available. 
is able to cut that lead down just simply because of the Red Bull's superior straight line speed. And then finally, after nine laps, Max has got DRS and is able to pass Leclerc and Leclerc pretty much had no answer for him. So, but then, you know, so we go along and Verstappen, after he passes Leclerc, is able to build up a large enough lead that actually at the end of the race with, I believe it was either two or three laps left to go, he takes and he makes the call to come into the pits, take on a set of, of the soft tires and go out so that he can take and not only can he, will he have the points for winning the sprint race, winning the race itself, but also the one point for fastest lap and, and rest that fastest lap away from his teammate, which did cause a little bit of a, a, a kerfuffle, but, you know, and they had to have a little bit of a, a sit down with the drivers after the race in order to kind of smooth things over. But, you know, again, he is, he is fighting for first. He's fighting for the driver's championship to be the world champion. I don't mm-hmm. have a problem with that at all. If, no, I don't either. If you know, because every that, point counts. Exactly. You never know, like we talked about last week. You never know when you're going to get that DNF or, you know, your car starts. A string of DNFs. Or, you know, any multitude of things. You don't know. So you need literally every single point that you can make. So if if that's, quote unquote, stealing it from your teammate, I don't really consider it as stealing because if there's no favorites here you drive as fast as you can you get that point otherwise guess what you you don't so you know the other thing i want to talk about briefly is Verstappen built such a huge lead that he was able to take a tire change and still lead Mm -hmm. no problem He, he still was up i think after a tire change he was up by four seconds still I mean, yes. I think he ended the race by nine seconds, something to that effect. No, so, it was like five and a half seconds. Yeah, okay. All right, five and a half seconds. So even after a tire change, it's just it's yeah. amazing the, the dominance that, that we have. Really, I wouldn't just say Red Bull, right? I, I would extend that to, to say Max. Yes. Like Max and Red Bull is just that perfect combination right now. It's just nobody has an answer for it. That's so very true. All right, so this weekend, first and foremost, sad news that Bob Fernley dies at the age of 70 and for those of you who don't know bob was the team principal for force india for most of the time that force india was on the grid and but one of the things that made bob first of all bob was universally loved up and down the the pit everybody loved him because he was just an all-around great guy but the thing that really endeared him to a lot of people was the fact that he was such a voracious advocate for the midfield teams. So a lot of the things that you're seeing now that's allowing the midfield teams and the back and even some of the back marker teams to be able to compete on a much more level footing with the big teams like Mercedes and Red Bull and Ferrari was because of the efforts of Bob. He was such a fierce advocate for the midfield teams. He was a big reason why we're at the point now where we do have the cost caps for the team development. The the amount of CFD time that teams are allowed to use, you know, to shape the cars and things like that. A lot of those reasons were because of Bob. And I think that genuinely the sport of F1 is better 
because of Bob. Yeah, Bob will definitely be missed. Yep, absolutely. Even though, you know, he retired a few years ago and hadn't been, you know, as closely involved with the sport. Like I said, a lot of the, the a lot of the things that, uh, you know, we see now in F1 were attributed to Bob. You will be missed. Rest in peace, sir. All right. So I'm sure that you saw the news about Hamilton whining about when a team has such a large advantage over the rest of the field, the team should not be allowed to start development on next year's car until the end of the season. And all I have to say is what a hypocritical whiner, because I guarantee you that when he was dominating for, you know, that, you know, when Mercedes was dominating for that, for that span of time from 2008 until 2022, they were doing the exact same thing. He's trying to chase that, that world title number eight. He's wanting that. So I find it so hypocritical, just like you were saying, that they Mercedes were so dominant for so many years. I mean, almost a decade. You knew mm-hmm. pretty much who was going to win the champion, the, the world championship, as well as the constructors. You pretty much knew. It was almost a guarantee for yeah. seven years straight. And now that Mercedes has taken a little bit, bit of a dip, which, we, you know, again, we've talked on other podcasts where we're starting to see them show signs of their greatness yet again but they're still struggling in in certain aspects they're not not to red bull status at this point but at no point in their dominance did did anybody say oh yeah we need to change the rules yeah i can't tell you how many times that something's not working out for mercedes and all of a sudden toto wolf's clamoring at the fia to change a rule Mm -hmm. that's that's not how it's done just because you don't like it just because you don't work with it doesn't mean that the entire F1, all the racing teams have to change because to suit you to make it easier. <laughs> Absolutely. No. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. Because I, I will get on a soapbox for Hamilton. One of the other things that was floated this weekend was, is a lot of people were complaining on, especially on like the shorter tracks, you know, like the Red Bull ring, you know, the Hungaro ring, you know, and even to some extent, the, the tighter, you know, maybe they're a little, they're longer, but maybe a little tighter you know, as far as track width and everything, you know, the, the the things with, you know, the complaints the last few weeks, you know, about the whole impeding during qualifying and everything. And there was several people who floated the idea of returning to single lap qualifying, which for those of you who aren't familiar, once upon a time, before they went to the current qualifying format, which they went to to make qualifying a little more exciting. Once upon a time, they literally, the drivers would basically, they would go out for qualifying and they would basically have three laps, a warm-up lap, a flying lap, a cool-down lap. And they would go out one at a time to take and do their qualifying, kind of like the way that IndyCar does on a lot of the ovals, where they go out and they qualify one car at a time simply for safety's sake. And there was a number, number of people who floated that idea that maybe we could go back to the Q1, you know, the, the qualifying that's done as a single lap, you know, and the, the qualifying order is based upon practice times. So I'm not going to lie that when the, when the current format came about, I was not a big fan of it. I kind of was a purist in the fact that I preferred the old style one driver at a time out on the track where they were the single focus of the television coverage of everything else they basically had one shot at it which made it i thought very exciting but i have come around on the current qualifying format i do like it 
But I do, somebody, and I forget who, did make one suggestion, though, that as we get into Q2 and even more so in Q3, once, you know, you start reducing down the number of cars, that the impeding problem doesn't become as prevalent. So I think the idea of splitting Q3 into two groups might not be a bad idea so that that way we can still retain the current, you know, qualifying format of top 15 drivers make it to the next round, top 10 drivers make it to the final round. But maybe start by having, okay, so the bottom 20 or the bottom 10 drivers from practice go out on the track first for Q3, and then the top 10 go out on the track for their part of Q3, and then see how things shake out. And maybe even do that to some degree with the Q3 times, split the field again for Q2, and then everybody, you know, the remaining 10 drivers just all participate in Q1, or Q3, I mean. I like that idea, because how many times have we seen that a driver impedes another driver when they're on their hot lap? We've seen that so many times, and who knows what the qualities would have been like if we did institute something like that, where there's less cars on on the track, you don't have to worry as much, there's not as much traffic. And just like a few races ago where we had several drivers that were trying to, to qualify and they couldn't because of traffic. So yes. going through a system like this definitely is going to help with that. Yeah, and it's not absolutely. Fair, right? We're not wanting, we're not judging quality, qualities are not judged on you trying to get around people or, or you getting through traffic. It's judged just on top speed. Your car is tuned for that, tuned specifically for this this type of fast circuit. So you're trying to get through that track as quickly as possible. So I love that idea that we possibly have less cars on the track, less problems with traffic. I'm a huge proponent of that. Absolutely. And I'm and so personally, I, you know, yeah, like I said, I'm I'm kind of a fan of the latter hybrid idea, you yeah. know, as opposed to going back to just the single qualified, you know, single lap qualifying. Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. All right. So real quick, let's talk about Ferrari and McLaren. They came with both came with uh, significant updates to the cars this last weekend, even though the teams only had, you know, one practice to really kind of judge, you know, how good the updates were. I think we definitely saw that in both cases, you know, now admittedly with McLaren, only Norris's car had the updates. Piastri will have to wait till Silverstone to get those updates. But both cars looked significantly faster with the upgrades in place this last weekend. We haven't seen McLaren look that good in quite a while. Exactly. At least was not in dry conditions. In the wet the last couple of years, you know, it's like Norris's because again, Norris's rain being the great equalizer, Norris's amazing, you know, is definitely above the norm in the rain. It was incredible to see norris be that fast and and i even saw someplace that norris said that he probably could have pushed it even further yeah given a little bit more time in practice that would have been fantastic to see uh, i'm a huge yeah. fan of norris I, I would like to see him do do well but we, we've talked about that on a previous podcast where mclaren better do something quick <laughs> it, yeah. it won't take them long before loyalty is one thing but at a certain point you have to think about yourself a little bit too you're not getting yep. any younger. Not that he's old by any stretch, right? <laughs> you know, F1, you're you're not going to be in there for very long. So you need to do the most of, that you can while you're there. So yep. I mean, look at Danny Rick. I mean, hell, that guy is a fantastic driver. In two years, he doesn't have a seat. So 
need to do something quick. The last thing was, is that the, someone from the FIA and Liberty Media floated the idea that they need, with the new rule changes coming in 2026, is they really need to look at making the cars, they were saying the cars have become too large and too heavy. We need to get back more towards the way that Formula One cars were in pre-2008, 2007, 2008, where the cars started getting bigger and bigger, and especially uh, the, the current iteration of the cars. I think we talked about this before in one of the previous podcasts about how I went to the Peterson Museum last year when they were doing a uh, exhibition on Formula One cars, and they had uh, cars from uh, everything from the uh, Ayrton Senna's Lotus from 1981, 82, somewhere in there, and going all the way up to the current generation Formula One cars. And you can see that car, Ayrton drove the early 80s, and next to it they had Ayrton Senna's car from the 94 season when... Senna was killed it was a little bit larger but not much larger than the Lotus and you could go through the evolution of the cars you know and you even could see the cars that Mika Hakkinen won his world championships in and those cars are just tiny compared to today's car and to me that was one of the, the hallmarks of what made Formula One just so amazing back in those days is just the fact that the cars were so small and they were so lightweight compared to the current iteration of the cars. What's your thoughts? Do you think it's a good idea for us to, to go back to the smaller, lighter cars or are we good where we're at right now? I'm always a fan of lighter is better. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, Absolutely. I like, I like to see that. Yeah, most definitely. I, I, you know, I'd like to see some change in, in how the cars are constructed and make them a little bit lighter make them more nimble, you know, that that's going to make cornering that much better, but that much more competitive. Yeah. I, I'm a big yeah. fan. I think that moving to that direction will, will really help F1 hopefully attract even more people to watch and more fans. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think it's about time to take and bring this puppy home next up next weekend. We've got Silverstone coming at you from the, the British Grand Prix. I will have lots of excitement from there because Silverstone always provides some of the best racing every single year. So it's going to be a pretty exciting weekend. Can't wait to see that. So any final thoughts, Corey? I'm excited for Silverstone. I, I cannot wait. It's one of my favorite tracks. It's on my bucket list, as it were, to actually go mm -hmm. to a race there. I love it. So I, I'm very excited for next week. Okay, Motorheads, it's time to pack up the garage. If you enjoyed this or any other episodes of F1 Brake Check, please give us a like and leave a review in the comments. Please consider subscribing in your favorite podcast apps. We really appreciate it. Finally, if you like what we're doing and you want to support us, consider contributing to the podcast. Links will be available on the socials later. Also, we're working on possible merch offerings and we'll have more information soon. So until next time, for Corey Brune, I'm Scott Vick saying keep it off the wall and out of the kitty litter. Ta-ta.